It's hard to know which films to watch nowadays. Between the cinema, streaming services, and whatever you've got on your DVD shelf, the choice seems infinite. So how do you choose? Well, we're here to tell you, one year on from when we did this the first time, that the best films are those made years ago. Hi, I'm Michaela, And I'm Nicola. And welcome to the Female, Female Film, Film Fanatics Podcast. Podcast. While we hope you enjoy this episode, we did want to let you know that some of the films we'll be discussing have adult themes, so watch with caution. Alright, and with that said, let's jump into it. Enjoy your movie. Now, 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here, to ponder the error of your way. High school is different for everyone. We all have our own unique experiences, which is interesting because the structure of it hasn't changed. But in 1984, John Hughes decided to tell the story of five American teenagers in high school. And yes, I am talking about The Breakfast Club. I think it stands out as doing the best at capturing authentic teen experiences. So, five high school students from different social cliques are forced to go to detention because of various reasons on a Saturday in the school library. Detention is supervised by the strict and demeaning Principal Vernon, and as the day goes on, we find out why each student is in detention, and they realise they have more in common than they imagined. I love that this made it onto our list. It's such a great film, and I love that John Hughes let the five young actors improvise quite a lot as well. It adds a special element to the film, I think, because you feel like the actors are the characters. Definitely, and with that said, I will get into the facts. Now, Judd Nelson improvised the part at the closing of the film where, spoiler, Bender raises his fist in defiance. He was supposed to just walk off into the sunset, but John Hughes asked him to play around with a few actions, one which included him raising his fist up. Everyone loved it, and it has also become an iconic symbol of 1980s cinema. So iconic. How many references in other popular culture does that moment have? Too many to count. (laughs) (laughs) The movie's theme song, Don't You Forget About Me, was written for the film by British songwriter Keith Forsey. It was originally given to Billy Idol and then Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, but both artists turned it down. Another rejection was Pretenders frontwoman Chrissy Hind. However, she suggested her husband, Jim Kerr's band, should do it. He was the lead singer of Simple Minds and that's all she wrote. It's so funny now knowing the influence that song has had, thinking about how no one apparently wanted it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what makes this film so fantastic is that each character tells their story with credibility and persistence. Jock Andrew, played by Emilio Estevez, is under immense pressure from his father to meet his high expectations. Brainiac Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall, excels academically but is failing shop class and he nor his family will accept a fail. Prom Queen Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, is under pressure to conform to her friendship group, as well as dealing with family issues. Lona Allison, played by Ali Sheedy, doesn't have any friends, wears black, and has problems at home as well. And Bender, played by Judd Nelson, while tough on the outside, hides a rough home life. I adore this film for a multitude of reasons, but the intense characterization really makes it stand out in my mind. I'm always recommending it to people. Same here. Now, The Breakfast Club gave us this breakthrough portrait of misery and misunderstanding of high school, which results from the social hierarchy created by young people themselves. And nearly 40 years on, we still see the same relevant themes from The Breakfast Club. 
So if you want something that is like the gold star of teen movies, <laughs> then this is the film for you. Agreed. We accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And now a film that's just as focused on character relationships, however, does have a more serious tone. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Yeah, where's the little woman? Marlon Brando, Vivian Lee. These two very memorable actors of their time star in this fantastic and devastating film and give incredible performances. Kim Hunter also stars and was awarded both a Golden Globe and Academy Award for her performance. I love Streetcar Named Desire. It's one of my favourite plays and probably one of my favourite pieces of literature. Nice. <laughs> so the film follows Blanche Dubois, played by Lee, as she travels to stay with her sister Stella, played by Hunter. It's there she encounters Stella's husband Stanley, played by Brando and the two come to odds with one another, ultimately leading to an awful end for one of them. But I won't spoil who. Blanche is one of my favourite characters in cinema. She is this haunting figure and it's never not shocking in this movie. And while I do think Brando was incredible in this, Vivian Lee was really what made this film iconic. Absolutely. The story originates from the Tennessee Williams play of the same name, who also penned the screenplay. The script is impeccable, allowing the viewer to empathise with the characters' plights properly, obviously aided by the extraordinary performances of the cast. Tennessee Williams really packed this story from beginning to end, and it had so much conflict-driven dialogue that Elia Kassan was able to so successfully bring it to the screen. Absolutely. This film is a masterclass in acting, with all three leads bringing their absolute A-game. I have to agree with you, Nicola, Vivian Lee is my favourite part of this film. <laughs> if you've watched anything of Brando's or Lee's, you know the power they commanded over their craft. And if you've not had the pleasure, this film is a perfect introduction to both of them. While it is in black and white, which may turn some viewers off, I urge you to embrace it. It adds another dimension entirely to the film. Because it was adapted from a stage production, it's what some might call a dialogue-heavy film. However, every word is necessary. Not to mention the soundtrack, which composer Alex North wrote in short sets to reflect the psychological dynamics between the characters and that adds yet another layer to the film. I loved the setting and score of this film. They captured 1950s New Orleans jazz vibe and the setting played a major part in this film as well. Absolutely. All in all, this film is devastatingly beautiful and should be added to everyone's watch list. And to add another dramatic film onto this classic list, I'm going to talk about Rear Window. We become a race of peeping toms. What people ought to do is get outside their own house and look in for a change. So I'm sure we've all looked out of our window and become intrigued by the passers-by, trying to give them a backstory to their lives in our heads. <laughs> is that just me? <laughs> I'm sure now more than ever being in quarantine, people watching has become a popular pastime. But what happens if you see something out of the ordinary, like some criminal activity? What would you do? Hitchcock had the same question and thus the amazing crime thriller Rear Window was born. It follows news photographer J.B. Jeffries, known as Jeff, 
played by Jane Stewart, who, after breaking his leg, finds himself bound to a wheelchair and confined to his apartment. He spends his day as a voyeur spy, looking at his neighbours, and soon introduces his girlfriend Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, to his thrill of voyeurism. It's all fun and games until they see what they believe to be a murder in action and become more and more convinced as they keep watching that apartment. I always think of the Simpsons spoofs when I think of this film. Sorry, Hitchcock. <laughs> but it's such a memorable concept. Like you said, how how many times do you look out your window? <laughs> I mean, I don't think I want to get into too much detail about that, but <laughs> and on that note, let's look at some facts. Mm. So the film was shot on a specially constructed apartment block that took 50 men two months to build and cost somewhere between $75,000 to $100,000. In fact, all the apartments that Jeff was looking into had electricity and running water and could actually have been lived in. There was a ballet dancer in the film named Georgine Darcy who played Miss Torso, who lived in her apartment all day relaxing between takes as if she was really at home <laughs> oh my goodness imagine that happening on other film sets the acting in this film is amazing jimmy stewart as the main character is unapologetically obsessed it was really clever to make the main character a photographer because they have this like innate visual perceptiveness and are able to tell a story with an image which stewart captures perfectly Grace Kelly is an excellent female lead because she's assertive, often playful, rambunctious, and at times reckless. Like Streetcar Named Desire, all the actors were really on top of their game in this film. Mm. Now, another one of my favourite things about this movie is the incredible use of location. It could have been bad if the shots were, like, too claustrophobic, but Hitchcock really never inhibits us, and he lets us see this world through Jeff's binoculars and camera lenses, and Hitchcock's camera movements really let us see what the characters see. Obviously not everything because that is not in Hitchcock fashion. <laughs> now the set design is wonderful and the fact that they had to build these apartments is extraordinary. There's this sense of individuality going on in each apartment window and there's a nice differing range of characters in each and them just going about their daily lives. Yes, the opening shot displays this perfectly as is expected of Hitchcock, I guess. I love the attention to detail. Yeah, and Hitchcock is considered the master of suspense and I believe he's also the master of understanding human nature like he understood that humans are naturally voyeurs not in like a perverted sense but in a curious sense Hitchcock really takes it to another level allowing us to watch a voyeur watch others it's sort of like this inception twist going on this is truly a cinematic accomplishment and the subtle ways that he tells the story and develops his characters is truly something to be applauded and Rear Window has become like a comfort food for me and I could watch it over and over and never get get tired of it. So I think younger generations should really give this classic a go. Do you suppose it's ethical even if you prove that he didn't commit a crime? I'm not much on rear window ethics. I'm really excited to watch it in full and now for a film I've watched probably the same amount of times as you've watched Rear Window because it's like my comfort food. <laughs> This is one film that's seen a bit of a resurgence into popular culture, 
Not that it ever left, actually. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was notably panned by the novel's author, Stephen King, but that hasn't stopped this incredibly well-made film from withstanding the test of time, and that makes it truly classic. Yeah, this is a truly brilliant and scary film from Stanley Kubrick, and combining his skills with the literary work of Stephen King is genius. Absolutely. For anyone unaware, The Shining tells the story of Jack Torrance, played by the magnificent Jack Nicholson, as he accepts a job acting as the caretaker for the Overlook Hotel during its off-season. Right off the bat, Jack is told of an unfortunate incident, quote-unquote, that occurred with a previous caretaker, where he killed his wife, daughters, and himself. And then Jack still accepts the job. He and his wife, Wendy, along with their son, Danny, move into the Overlook, and over the course of the off-season, things start to unravel. Here's Johnny! The standout element of this film for me is the directing choices. There's a reason Stanley Kubrick's work has lived on, and The Shining is a shining (laughs) example of why. It's such a well-made film, like I've already said, and if you haven't seen it yet, get onto it. It's a film that really sucks you in and has an eerie horror that makes it watchable for even the most squeamish among us, myself included. I got through it and have rewatched it so many times because I adore it, so you can too. Yeah, I think psychological horrors like The Shining are truly the scariest films for me than any monster movie. I think it's the possibility that it could happen and that the villain could be someone we know and trust. Absolutely. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Well, on a positive note, something I find ever humorous is the fact that Danny Lloyd, who plays Danny, would have been easy for him to remember his character's name, (laughs) wasn't aware that he was shooting a horror film. He was six years old at the time and so was shielded from the mature content, told it was simply a drama about a family that lived in a hotel. As a result, he thought he was shooting the most boring movie ever. How wrong he was. (laughs) Shelley Duvall, who played Wendy, was famously mistreated by Kubrick during filming to push her to her absolute limit. This seems to have worked as her performance is the heart of the film and extremely powerful, although it earned her a Razzie nomination when the film first came out. On Kubrick's treatment, Duvall herself said it was effective. Her performance was truly heartbreaking, even more so now that we know that Duval was mistreated on set. Absolutely. Well, nevertheless, the film is a classic for so many reasons, so what are you waiting for? Add it to your list. Following up with another Stanley Kubrick film, I will be talking about his 1971 crime sci-fi masterpiece, A Clockwork Orange. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. I've only just recently seen it, but it has definitely been one that has stood out in my mind. And I've started reading the book it's based off of, and it's just as trippy as the movie. Fantastic. Well, full disclosure, I haven't seen this one, but listeners can rest assured that Nicola has urged me to. Yeah, I've there's so many movies that I've been pushing onto Michaela, but Clockwork Orange is up there, along with Batman 66. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been doing it back. <laughs> Yeah, it's give and take here. Now warning, this is quite an explicit movie, so please proceed at your own risk. 
few films are as sensational or infamous as A Clockwork Orange. It's impossible to sit through it without having at least one of three reactions. Shock, disgust, amazement. This story centres around Alex Delage, the main protagonist, and his gang of thugs, or Drugies, as they're called in the movie, and it's placed in a not-so-distant dystopian Great Britain. The beginning portion unfolds Alex's dark and twisted soul as we watch him and his gang fight, rape, and kill. And when he's eventually caught, he undergoes controversial treatment to be cured of his dark soul. Probably one of the most outrageous shots of the film is Alex's eyes being forced open by this contraption during his treatment. The actor playing Alex, Malcolm McDowell, had his eyes numbed for these scenes so that he could film for periods of time without too much discomfort. Nevertheless, his corneas got repeatedly scratched by the metal lid locks. Also, the doctor that stands over him was an actual doctor who had to ensure McDowell's eyes didn't dry up. I mean, it's insane. I'm so squeamish about eye things, but I'm glad an actual doctor was present. That makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, this might be a part where you need to hit the fast forward button, but um, (laughs) it's truly iconic. The press blamed the film for a series of alleged copycat crimes in the UK, prompting calls for it to be banned. The film remained in cinemas until Kubrick actually requested Warner Brothers to pull it from the UK cinemas. While filming his following movie, Barry Lyndon, Kubrick received death threats. Distraught, Kubrick kept the studio from publicly showing the movie in the British Isles and Ireland until after his death in 1999. That is definitely very sad. And while copycat crimes are a thing, people should stop blaming films for the individual's decisions. No one wants you to actually do that eye thing. I second that. I do not want that eye thing to happen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now, before I get into why I love this movie, I do think, however, I should further address the controversial nature of this movie. While the subject matter is essential to the essence of the story, I do think that confronting the audience with the violence in this film is incredibly disturbing and not easy to stomach. And these extremely explicit moments are obviously not the reason why I love Clockwork Orange, but I do think it's a clear example of the story being thought-provoking while not traumatising the viewer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I adore films that get you to really think, and I'm a firm believer that those make some of the best films in history. Definitely. I first appreciate the concepts of this story and the types of questions surrounding freedom, choice, good versus evil, and selfishness. It has a way of making the audience look at themselves despite Alex's inability to relate with hopefully any viewer. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm a glass half full person. Goodness is chosen. When a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. So the acting was amazing, especially from Malcolm McDowell. His performance felt so authentic and there's never a single moment that feels faked or forced with his character. And Stanley Kubrick also directed the hell out of this. His commanding and authoritative shooting style is apparent in every frame and he does an incredible job at pulling the viewer into this horrific world to the point of enthrallment. Although completely out there, I can honestly say there is nothing like Clockwork Orange. It is ingrained in pop culture and we have seen people like David Bowie and Lady Gaga reference the film in their music and performances. And I see it as a must-watch for all fans of classic cinema. It's understandable why everyone may not be completely on board, but those who love it have become die-hard fans of it. So I recommend that you definitely watch this movie if you're looking for a bit of old ultraviolence. 
I was cured, all right. Well, here's a film that tells a nice, light and cheerful story to finish today's episode. Hooray! <laughs> We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz is truly a classic, and if there's one word to describe its influence, it is iconic. This charming tale of Dorothy Gale continues to stand the test of time, with Judy Garland's dulcet and impeccable singing voice, an iconic friends and foes, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, and, of course, the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too! <laughs> Honestly, so many aspects of this film are... Mm-hmm. iconic from the aforementioned characters to the sets the soundtrack the costumes and the transition from sepia-toned kansas to technicolored oz wizard of oz is another film i've rewatched during isolation lockdown and i haven't seen it in years and it's still managed to bring a smile to my face yes it's so good <laughs> if you haven't seen this film you should watch it right now it's got something for everyone and will make you feel giddy and happy as you watch dorothy journey through oz to meet the wonderful wizard of oz to send her back home now while this film is iconic and rightly so what with its charming setting and characters. It's a bit of an example of some of the very bad and often dangerous filming techniques that were used back in the day. I'll only give a few examples because I want this section to be nice and uplifting, however. <laughs> the quote-unquote snow that was used in the poppy field scene was actually asbestos. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> the original actor that was cast as the Tin Man had an extreme reaction to the aluminium dust used in the makeup look. As a result, he had to leave production and Jack Haley took over the role. And most sadly, the treatment of Judy Garland on set with studio executives putting pressure on her to lose weight, she was 16, to play the role of Dorothy, saying she was a, quote, fat little pig with pigtails. Honestly, the stories from The Wizard of Oz set are some of the most atrocious I've ever heard, and while I feel at times guilty watching it, I think it's important to recognise the people that had to go through some of the turmoils on set, like Judy Garland, and watch it for them. Absolutely. She still delivered an incredible performance and was awarded a juvenile Oscar for her effort. Go Judy. <laughs> I promised we would finish this episode on a happier note, so here are some fun facts. The Tin Man's tears were actually chocolate syrup. Delicious. <laughs> the ruby slippers, the incredibly memorable piece of footwear, are actually silver in the books the film is based on. However, it was decided they would pop more on screen and stick in the minds of audiences if they were a bright red. And so the iconic look was born. And finally, the song everyone relates to this classic film, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, was almost cut from the film as some worried it was too slow and sad. A very good decision to keep it in as it's helped the film remain in the minds of its viewers almost a century after its initial release. I honestly can't imagine Wizard of Oz without Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Right? Well, what did you think of our picks? Let us know on Twitter at FFilmFanatics if there was some you think should have made it onto this second edition of Classic Movies You Need to See. While you're on Twitter, give us a follow and follow the amazing artist who did our logo, Charlotte, at Charles underscore Mitz. And remember, you can catch up on all our past episodes, including the original list of classics on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in next time when we get into another movie battle about... 
Titanic. Ooh, I've got my gloves on already. <laughs> as long as you stay 1.5 metres away, let's do this. <laughs> well, until then, this is Michaela. And this is Nicola. And this has been the Female, Female Film, Film Fanatics, Fanatics Podcast. Podcast.